I suspect that most of us have, at least to some degree, a negative perspective of obedience. It is something that we are encouraged to do, maybe forced to do, have to be trained to do. I mean, we send our pets to obedience school. They have a whole school for obedience. Why is that? Because it just doesn't come naturally to us. We have a tendency in our broken, human, sinful spirits to rebel against obedience. And so when we hear, uh, when we hear someone talking about rules, we're thinking about um, excuses. When people start talking about making commitments, right behind that comes um, you know, things like, um, how far do I have to go? How can I, how can I find a, a little bit of a way around this? And we start talking about laws, and the first thing we're doing is looking for loopholes, right? I mean, is that the basis for the whole IRS tax code? That, you know, people keep looking for loopholes, and so they keep creating more laws to try to cover up the loopholes, and people keep finding more loopholes, and that's why it takes us, you know, how many weeks and months to do our taxes, and we have to pay people to do this one. It ought to be, hey, just give us this much money and we'll be good. It just doesn't work that way because we have a hard time with just straightforward obedience or something rebellious in us. And we see that through the history of God's people. We're not limited to that. Go back to the Old Testament. God gives to them a law. You would think I would be able to say to them, here are ten things you ought to know. This should pretty much cover it. You should be good with this. Ten things. That's all you got to do. But as soon as they see those ten things, it's, yeah, but what about this? What about that? What about that? What about that? And do we have to do this? And so God creates, has to create this much bigger law. And, and the whole Old Testament of the prophets and the Word teaching us to understand what it means to obey God. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he talks about obedience a lot. And he says to his followers, obey me. Obey the Father. Obedience is huge for citizens of the kingdom. And as Jesus begins his ministry, as Matthew records it here, and he, and he begins and he teaches this sermon that in many ways is a summary of everything that Jesus comes to tell us and to help us know. He talks about obedience. We read a long passage this morning. A lot of stuff in there. And I suspect if you're like me, you're reading through that going, whoa, what does that mean? What is that about? We're supposed to do that, Really? And, and people write books about sections of what we read this morning, not even the whole thing. So there's no way we can get into all the details of what Jesus says here. And I want to really think more of an overview. But I want to walk us through these six examples that Jesus gives us real quickly about what it means to obey, what obedience looks like for citizens of the kingdom of God. He starts by talking about murder. He says, you've heard it said that thou should not murder. And I suspect most everyone in his audience, and I would suspect a pretty high percentage of our audience, would say, yeah, that's a bad thing. But Jesus says that's not enough. I'm not just concerned about you murdering people. I'm concerned about hatred in your heart for people. Bitterness. And if push came to shove and you thought you could get away with it, you might actually take someone's life. Have such animosity, such bitterness, such anger. And the problem with that is not just about this circumstance that this person hurt me. When bitterness and takes root in us, 
it affects every single relationship in our lives. It's like it gets into our bloodstream and we begin to to express anger and bitterness. It comes out in every relationship we have, including our relationship with God. Jesus says obedience is not just the act of taking someone's life. It's that anger, bitterness, hatred that can seep into us. Then he talks about adultery and he says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. And again, I'm assuming their audience and our audience would say, yeah, that's a bad thing. But he says it's, it's more than that. It's not just that particular physical act. It is the heart. It's, our, it's our, what's going on in our hearts that often leads to that. And he says it's, it's not just that act, but it's lustful, it's lustful thoughts. It's, it's focusing on someone in such a way that we objectify them to gratify our own desires. People are no longer people. We dehumanize people. That's, the, that's one, of the, one of the great problems of this issue of lust. We dehumanize people in such a way that we think we can use them, manipulate them, do whatever we want to gratify ourselves because they aren't really human. And that too gets into our bloodstream. And we start seeing every person, every relationship as, how can I get them to do what I want them to do? How can I manipulate them and use them? And again, we do that with God too. God does not become the the, the being who loves us. He becomes the being that we try to manipulate to get what we want. And, and And it feeds our whole life. And then he moves to to probably the most controversial thing he says here, and that is divorce. It's always been a problem for for the world, even going all the way back to Israel, because this idea of a certificate of divorce is something that goes back to Moses. The marriages were were in trouble, and, and there were terrible things happening in their marriages. And so God says to Moses, there are maybe lesser evils than letting that continue. So I'm going to allow people to, have a, to, to do a certificate of divorce. And that was interpreted after, after a period of time as God doesn't mind, he doesn't care if we get divorced or not. And so you have rabbis on two sides of this issue in Jesus' day. One rabbi and the school of thought was that you can divorce a man. Of course, all the powers with the men. Women had no rights here. Women had no rights to, to initiate divorce, only men. And men could divorce their wives for anything. Not just unfaithfulness, but if, if, if they... There, there are stories of rabbis saying, if they burn your supper, you can divorce them. They put too much salt in your food, you can divorce them. Then buy the right brand of celery, you can divorce them. It doesn't really make any difference. If, you, if they don't satisfy whatever need you have, if they disappoint you or discourage you, you can divorce them. And the underlying idea is God doesn't really care. Then you had the other side of it, the rabbi saying there's absolutely never, ever, ever is divorce allowed. Period. And Jesus is, they're asking Jesus, so which is right? And Jesus, as he normally does, says, well, neither. Because both of them are approaching this from the wrong perspective. Both of, in both perspectives, the only person they're thinking about is the, is the male. 
well, how much can the male do? How little can the male do? And Jesus is saying, while that's important, I'm really concerned about the victims here. Because what you're doing to the women you divorce is creating a shameful lifestyle for them. They have no way to support themselves. They have no way to support their children without entering into behavior that is even more shameful than they've already been through. You put them in a terrible position. And why is that? Because you don't really care about them. Just think about yourself. What you want to do. Saying you gotta, God does not take this lightly. Yes, there are times when when divorce is the the lesser lesser of the two evils, but it's always as a last resort. It is always as as a heart wrenching decision, and we recognize as God does, and if and you know if you have any connection to divorce at all, how painful it is for every single person. And Jesus is saying, God doesn't take this lightly and neither should you as citizens of the kingdom. He moves on to talk about oaths. And their perspective was that as long as you swore on the right things, then you could say whatever you wanted to say. And Jesus says, why do you need these oaths? Why do you need to swear on anything? Because your word doesn't mean anything. You know, when we were kids, we'd say things to friends. I remember, you know, you say to friends, man, you don't believe what I just saw. And you tell them what they saw, and they say to you, oh, I don't believe that. No way. And you say to them, cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. And that's what we used to say. I don't know about you guys, but that's what we would say. However grotesque that was, what we were saying is, no, I'm telling the truth. It was a, it was a you know, a, a little, uh, a little safer way of really swearing we're telling the truth and you hear I, I know we all hear it people swearing on various things I swear on my mother's grave I swear on swear on this I swear on that why do we feel the need to do that because we're not really sure people believe us and Jesus says as citizens of the kingdom your word is important You don't need to swear about things. Just say yes and do it. Or say no and don't do it. But don't mess around with all this stuff and give people the impression and give people the sense that as citizen kingdoms, as kingdom citizens, our word really doesn't mean anything. See, the problem with that is it reflects on God. Because our poor reputation about our word as representatives of God tells people God can't be trusted either. Your yes be yes, your no be no. However painful that may be sometimes. And then he talks about retaliation. Takes us back to a passage in Exodus and a few other places where, again, God made some concessions for the culture in which they lived. In the, in the ancient culture, if you put out my eye, I'll take your life. You break my tooth, I'll, take, I'll put out your eye or worse. And God says this, this whole thing of, of upping the ante of retaliation has got to stop. And so he says to Israel, the, the most you can do is what was done to you. That's the ceiling. That's the limit. And really, a lot of what he's talking about in that particular setting is in a court of law. So if someone is convicted of this injury, that's the injury they can receive and no more. But it also became a part of just how they related to each other. And Jesus says, how about we try something different? Let's forgive each other. 
let's let's stop this, you know. Let, let, let's try something else. Instead of this cycle of violence that keeps going and, and escalating, how about if we throw a wrench in that? Charles Campbell says that he envisions this, 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 uh, this scene where a Roman soldier and sol- Roman soldiers could, could ask citizens to carry their stuff. And they would care, make them carry it everywhere as long as they wanted. And so it became a real problem. So the government said, you can only ask people to carry your stuff one mile. That's it. So he imagines this scene where a Roman soldier asks this Christian man to carry his stuff. And the guy says, okay, sure. So he picks up his stuff and he carries it a mile. And when he gets into the mile, the soldier says, okay, that's it. You can put it down now. And he says, no, I don't mind. I'll carry it some more if you want. He says, no, you're, you're not allowed to. It's against the law. He says, well, I know that, but that's okay. I don't mind carrying it. I'll carry it another mile for you. And he says, what are you trying to do to me here? I can get flogged or fined if people hear about this. What are you trying to do? You're messing with the way things work. And the guy says, maybe, but I don't mind carrying it. It's okay. I think Jesus is saying that's the kind of thing we want to do. We throw a wrench in the way the the world operates, especially in the sense of retaliation. We see it all the time. You do that to me, I do a little bit more to you. And you do a little bit more to me, and I do a little bit more to you. And pretty soon, it's escalated totally out of control. And Jesus says... We try forgiving each other and stopping it. And that relates to what he says in the sixth example. And he says, you know, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now you need to understand that what what Jesus is addressing here is not specifically scripture. Nowhere, he doesn't say, the scripture says this, and I'm telling you this. He's saying, you've heard it said, or another way of interpreting that is, you've been taught. This is how you perceive, how you interpret scripture. Because quite frankly, no place in scripture does God say you are to hate your enemy. That's a perception that the Israelites and others make. And Jesus says, you may think that's what Scripture says, but that's not what it says. What Scripture says, as we saw in Leviticus 19, is you love your neighbor and you love your enemy. That's a radical concept. The people who have hurt you, the people who have rejected you, the people who have rejected God and offend you, you love them. We don't respond to hate with hate. We respond to hate with love. And Jesus says, look, anybody can love people who love them. I mean, that's like way baseline kind of living. The tax collectors, as he looks at them, I can see him looking at them saying, the tax collectors that you despise, they do that. The pagans that you hate, they do that. As citizens of the kingdom, the bar is just a little bit higher than that. We live a different kind of life. Now, what I find happens when you read, when, you, when people think through these examples that Jesus gives, is that what we sense Jesus saying is obedience means Jesus just creates stricter rules. He just, he just made the rules that much harder. That's not what he's doing at all. What he's saying is, 
Obedience is not about a checklist. Obedience is not about duty to rules. Because that always leads us to self-centeredness. A checklist is always going to lead us to say, as long as I feel good about myself, that's all that matters. This is really the heart of the discussion Jesus has with the Pharisees about what you can can and can't do on the Sabbath. Because for them, Jesus' healing on the Sabbath is breaking the rule. And Jesus says, wait a minute. Human beings weren't made for the rule. The rule was made for human beings. And that means the rule isn't the, isn't the end of it. It's that the rule leads us to live the kind of life that cares about people. That's the spirit of openness to God. He's not saying, look, I've just upped the ante on the strictness of the rules, and now you thought you couldn't do it before, now you really can't do it. He's saying, I want you to live in a spirit of openness to God. And don't worry about the checklist. Just live in a spirit of openness to God, about your attitude and your passions and your desires and, your, and, and, and what drives you. That's what God wants to get at. Not the checklist. Anybody can put check can check off stuff on a list. It doesn't even take much thinking to do a checklist. But openness to God, that's a whole other thing. That's a spirit that says, Lord, if I don't have you, I'll never be able to make it. Can't be the kind of citizen of the kingdom that I know you've called me to be without you. But give me that spirit of openness to you that lets me, allows me to follow you however the zigzagging course is that you may lead me. I want to live in that kind of openness to you. And the openness to God, I guarantee you, openness to God always leads us to think more about people than about rules. Always. More about people than rules. I think that's what Jesus means when he says that he didn't come to abolish the law, he came to fulfill it. Jesus is not saying to them, look, you know all the stuff that God gave the Israelites thousands of years ago? He really didn't mean all that. That really wasn't, that, that, that was a big mistake. We realize that now. So let's forget all of that and let's start all over again. He's saying if you really understood the intent of what God meant for that law, then what it would look like is standing right in front of you. I have fulfilled the law. Jesus is the only person who really grasped and lived out what God intended for the law to be from the very beginning. He says, if you want to know what it means to obey God, this is what it looks like. And when you look at the life of Jesus, it's never about rules. It's about obedience. It's never about being stricter. It's about being open to God. It's never about minimizing the behavior. And it's never about what's the least I can do and still be a citizen of the kingdom. 
I don't think there's any place in Scripture where God says, all right, let's talk about the least you have to do. I, I don't see it anywhere. What he says is, how in my kingdom, what you want, what you desire, what you're yearning for, is how much can I do? I'm so grateful to God for all that he has done for me and for us, for his people, for this world. I can't stop giving of myself. I mean, I think that's true of how we, maybe wrestle with that when it comes to what we do with our resources, our money, our time, our talent. God tells the Israelites the minimum amount is 10%, the tithe. And every follower of God, to be obedient to the minimum amount, gives to God's kingdom 10%. But you'll notice, even in the passage we read earlier, what does God tell the Israelites? Don't glean to the edges of your field. In other words, 10% is, is fine as a baseline, but you want to be thinking all of your life, how can I keep giving more? How can I keep doing more for people who don't have much of anything? And when you come to the New Testament, Paul says, yeah, the tithe is the baseline, but what God really wants is people who are generous. We're always thinking, not how little can I give and still be a citizen, but how much can I give because I'm a citizen? It's never about how little we can do. What's the least we can do? So Jesus says, what I'm looking for in terms of righteousness, holiness, obedience, it's got to be more than what you see happening with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law because all they're thinking about is what's the least I have to do? And in the kingdom of heaven, it's not enough. It's not the mindset you want. It's not this mindset of miserliness about our lives. It's a mindset of generosity about our lives because of who God is what God has done for us. It comes back to the want to in our hearts. I think really in many ways, summarizing this passage, it's about the want to. What's our passion? What's our desire? What do we love? And how do we express that? A number of years ago, I saw a movie entitled The Breakup. It's a really depressing movie. Uh, To be honest with you, I would not recommend it to you. Uh, it's one of those movies you're thinking at the end, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come up, but it doesn't. It just keeps nosediving all the way to the end. But there is a scene in the movie that I thought was pretty interesting. Jennifer Aniston and Vince Vaughn are the stars of this movie. And they are this, this couple, and they're starting to have difficulties. And one night they have some friends over for dinner, and she spends you know half the afternoon fixing this meal. And uh, when they leave later that night, it's late, and she sees him through the door, she closes it, locks it, comes in, and he's lying on the couch playing a video game. And she says, you know, she's just dog tired. She says, okay, I'm going to go do the dishes. He says, okay, babe, that's great. He's lying there with the And she stands there and says, um, be nice if you help me. He says, oh, you know, I'm just so tired. Uh, I'm just going to lay back here. I just really put my feet up and relax here a little bit. And she says, well, I'm tired too. I really could use your help with the dishes. You have 15 minutes. We have it done. He said, you know what? Okay, I'll help you, but let's do it in the morning. I'm just so tired tonight. We'll do it in the morning. She says, I don't want to do it in the morning. And he says, who cares whether you do it tonight or in the morning? She says, I care. I don't want to wake up to all those dishes in the sink. 
And she keeps telling him, I, I want you to help me with the dishes. I want you to help me with the dishes. And finally, he's badgered enough. He throws down his controller and says, fine, I'll help you with the dishes. And he gets up and she says, no, no, no. I don't want you to help me with the dishes. And now he's really confused. He said, you just said you want me to help you with the dishes. And she said, no. I don't want you to help me with the dishes. I want you to want to help me with the dishes. kind of think there is something of that in what Jesus is describing. It's not just that we do it and we whine and we complain and what's the least I have to do. No, there's this mindset of we love God. We have, our lives have been transformed by His grace. And when you experience that and you begin to live in that, you can't just think what's the least I have to do. It's a life of gratitude and generosity and and the changing of our hearts. To not just say, well, I didn't do those things, so I'm good. No, do we care about people? What's going on in our attitudes? What's going on in our minds? What's the want to of our lives? And so Jesus comes to the end of this and he says, this profoundly difficult statement to grasp. Be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. I cannot think of a, of a verse in Scripture more discouraging than that one. Right? It's not a hint. He's not just saying, boy, it sure would be nice if you were perfect like your Father. No, he says, be perfect like your Heavenly Father. How? Really? Seriously? How is that possible? Well, I think part of our issue with that, and people have had issues with it through the centuries, is that we, how we interpret perfect. most of us perfect means we don't make any mistakes I don't think that's what Jesus is saying because that's impossible the word he uses here has this sense of of completion fulfillment wholeness I think he's talking about the mindset that we approach things in life as citizens of the kingdom that, that the passion of our heart, however often we don't actually live it out, but the passion of our heart is we want, we want to be like Jesus. We want to look like our Father. And it makes me think of, this is going to age, you know, tell my, my uh, age a bit, but it reminds me of the song that was popular when I was in college by Amy Grant. I may not be every mother's dream for her little girl my face may not grace the minds of everyone in the world but that's all right as long as i can have one wish i pray when people look inside my life i want to hear them say he's got his father's eyes he's got his father's eyes things the way God does. We feel things the way God feels them. Our passions are God's passions. It's not because we just worked ourselves up more and more, not because we, we just created more of a strict rule system. It's because we are living in more and more openness to the Spirit. And obedience isn't something we lament and whine about it's something we see as a blessing a gift 
Jesus begins this sermon by saying, blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those. And I think often we see the Beatitudes as a section, kind of off by itself, and then we move on to the next thing. But I think the Beatitudes are the introduction to all the rest of the sermon, and quite frankly, probably all the rest of the Gospels and the New Testament. And I think Jesus is saying to us, you want to live a blessed life? Obey God like this. Give God control of your life. Let go of that. And instead of spending our time trying to prove to people how awesome we are, instead of spending our time trying to make sure we're following the rules, instead of spending our time trying to validate who we are and what we're doing and and all the ways in which we live our lives doing that, instead of spending all that time and energy, which quite frankly is exhausting to do that, Instead of being in that bondage, we live in the freedom of opening our lives to Christ and loving other people and letting God lead us where He wants to go. It doesn't mean it's an easy life. In fact, it's the most challenging life possible because it's about vulnerability and selflessness and sacrifice and love and compassion It's the blessed life because it keeps moving us closer and closer to our Creator. Loves us. I think in our contemporary world, maybe the person that exemplified that the most is Mother Teresa. I'm sure there are lots of other people. She lived a hard life. She gave herself to people who could give absolutely nothing back to her. And she, she entered that world not because she had a dream and a passion, because she had all kinds of other ideas for how she was going to spend her life, but because that was the word of God to her. And she didn't do it to get accolades. In fact, we'd never even know she'd done anything if people hadn't gone over there to visit and been so astounded they started writing books about her. But she lived in a spirit of openness to God that led her to love people nobody else loved. And to care for people no one else cared for. And was quite willing to do it in obscurity. would tell us, despite all the ups and downs and the struggles that she had, that God blessed her. And she was free from having to prove herself or validate herself. Free to just surrender to Christ. And that's God's call to us. Obviously, I don't know what might be the sticking point for you when you think about obedience. But we all have them. We all have them. And the choice before us is not, are we going to obey or not? The choice before us really is, do we want to live in bondage or freedom? Lots of 
Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for the invitation to freedom. Give us grace, set us free. We live in obedience as citizens of your kingdom. Through Christ Jesus and the power of the Spirit.